Welcome to Backstory, the show that looks at the history behind the headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Ed Ayers. If you're new to the podcast, each week, along with our colleagues Nathan Connolly and Brian Ballow, we explore a different aspect of American history. In March of 1940, 29-year-old Polly Murray got on a Greyhound bus with a friend in Washington, D.C. Murray was headed south to Durham, North Carolina, Murray's hometown, to spend time with relatives for the Easter holiday. The bus we started out on was a long, very nice bus, plenty of room. And we probably sat somewhat to the rear of the center of the bus, having plenty of room for whites, plenty of room for Negroes. That's a 1976 recording of Polly conducted by the Southern Oral History Program. Polly and Polly's friend Adeline McBean were both African-American. So riding the bus in 1940 meant enduring segregation laws and being forced to sit in the back section reserved for black folks. Murray and McBean got on the bus in Washington with no problem. It wasn't very crowded, and as Murray said, they sat close to the center. But everything changed in Virginia when they switched buses in Petersburg. And so we got in and sat, again, slightly rear of center. Somehow, the way in which the bus population shifted brought on a considerable number of white people, more than had been in the past. And so the time came when the driver came back and asked us to get up and move back. When I'm looking out the window and seeing that when those Negroes get on, there are going to be enough Negroes to take care of all of that back, so there's no reason for me to move. Murray told the driver they weren't going to move. But as the driver pressed Murray and McBean on it, they looked and saw the open seat behind them was broken. There was no way they could sit there. But the driver still expected them to. At this point, they go out and get the cops and arrest us. So it really has nothing to do with breaking the segregation law. It really has nothing to do with creating a disturbance. And so it was simply the whole Southern custom that must be satisfied. And you simply cannot break the taboo. And they charged us with breaking the segregation law, violating the segregation law, and creating a disturbance. Again, keep in mind, this is 1940. It's 15 years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, a move that helped kickstart the Montgomery bus boycott. While Murray's act of civil disobedience was similar in practice, it didn't create the same ripple effect. Murray and McBean's arrest in Petersburg caught the attention of the NAACP. The organization was hoping to use the case to challenge the law on segregated interstate travel. But the state of Virginia wanted to avoid a big trial, so they dropped most of the charges. In the end, Murray and McBean were left with one violation of disorderly conduct. They convicted me, and the NAACP could not afford to appeal the case. And therefore, we would have to, you know, either pay the fine, go to jail. 
and we refused to pay the fine. We went to jail. The arrest never became a landmark court case. It may not be in most history books, but for Polly Murray, it was the beginning of something big. A year later, in 1941, Polly Murray enrolled at Howard Law School. Immediately, Murray began tackling the big question that had marked that fateful bus trip through Virginia. How do you prove segregation is unconstitutional? She believed that segregation should be challenged in a bit more of a head-on fashion than was in vogue at that time. This is Serena Mayeri. She's a law and history professor at the University of Pennsylvania. So what Murray wanted to see happen was to challenge separate but equal directly as Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund eventually did in Brown versus Board of Education a decade later. And when they did decide to do that, Murray later found out that they looked back at this paper that she had written in law school and drew from it in preparing their briefs in Brown, which of course was the case that ultimately did declare separate but equal to be inherently unequal. I have lived to see the thesis upon which I was operating vindicated And what I say very often is that I've lived to see my lost causes found. But this law school paper wasn't the only document Murray wrote that influenced Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP's lawyers. A few years after graduating from Howard, Murray delivered another major stamp on civil rights history. 1948 to 1952, this was the state's laws on race and color, was a research job I did for the women's division of the Methodist Church. It was originally meant to be just a little pamphlet, but she really cataloged every single law having to do with race uh, at the state level in the United States at the time, which was a, a really Herculean undertaking. They published it, and that... According to Thurgood Marshall, that became the Bible for the civil rights lawyers when they were fighting these segregation cases. He obtained a copy of the book, apparently for every lawyer on his staff. Through all this work, it's safe to say that Murray was essential in helping to outlaw segregation. But to say Murray only worked within the world of civil rights would be a major understatement. She was really grappling with a lot of the complexities of racial identity, of gender and sexual identity, both as they manifested in life and also in the law itself. I am saying that we must accept the challenge of our existence, our existence being that of a a rejected, unwanted, persecuted minority. And that in a sense, we cannot accept this. We must make our contribution to history. 